You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. There's many things you can say about impeachment. It's easy in some ways. It's difficult in others. It's dangerous to do. It turns the attention on the accusers. Or it increases scrutiny of the president. The very last time it was done, a speaker of the House had to step down. Actually, his replacement had to step down too, and the president remained in office. Luther Martin was a prominent lawyer in Maryland, and he was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in 1787. He leaves early because he really doesn't like the constitutional plan, and particularly, he doesn't like the powers assigned to the President of the United States. He speaks to the Maryland Constitutional Convention and suggests strongly that they do not approve the convention. Among his many points, one of the things Luther Martin says is, look at this impeachment power. So you've got the House has to accuse the president, impeach the president, make a charge, and then it's up to the Senate to be the trial, to decide to convict or not convict. So you've got this House of Representatives that has to put its neck out there and suffer the consequences of, say, denial of patronage, patronage which even back then, 1787, is something that Luther Martin's thinking about. You're going to give this executive day-to-day power. He's going to have the ability to help out various congressmen in their districts. He could reward their opponents. There's all sorts of things that now the president can do. So you're leaving the House out there to have to stick their neck out, and then the Senate can decide what to do with the charge. It's never going to happen, is what Luther Martin says. All of the predictions that Luther Martin makes about the Constitution, you know, did not come to fruition. But in this one, I have a hard time thinking that he wasn't partially right. There haven't been that many impeachments. We've had really three. I know everyone's going to say two. I'm going to say three. I'm agreeing with the guests that we're about to speak to today and saying that Richard Nixon's was, in effect, a resignation before an impeachment that was surely to come. But the other two times has been tried with Andrew Johnson and then with Bill Clinton more recently, it hasn't been successful. The House stuck its neck out and the Senate refused to convict. With Andrew Johnson, it's even closer to what Luther Martin predicted in a sense because, as we discussed in a previous episode, In 1867, they get the House and the Senate both to support a vote, supporting generally a resolution of impeachment against Andrew Johnson. So the House took an action to kind of counter what Luther Martin was saying and keep the Senate 
you know, hey, you're on the hook for this too. But then in the actual conviction vote, as we all know, um, that one representative from Kansas, Ross, decided not to convict. And that did that. But just because it hasn't been used, it's been discussed quite a bit. In fact, the guest that we have on, David Priest, you know him. He's a, This is going to be his third time on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. He's a listener, former CIA analyst. He's the COO of Lawfare. He's also the author of How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. David Priest. So, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. It is a pleasure to be back, Bruce. There's always always something for us to talk about relating history to politics, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. There always is. I want to talk about impeachment. Many people are talking about it at this moment. It's not new. It seems like every time there's a president, the first thing that comes out is the the in- impeach President X stickers, right? But it's particularly coming out now with a little distance on Mueller report and Mueller's findings. You have a part of the Democratic Party that would like to impeach President Trump right now. You have a part that wants to at least do the investigation and see where that goes. And then you have a part, and this is the leadership partially, that doesn't want to touch the issue because it might be too dangerous politically. You have presidential candidates out there who have they express their opinions and generally are supporting either an impeachment or an investigation. So, your book, um, How to Get Rid of a President, among other things that you talk about, you know, presidents not being nominated, uh, potential presidents not winning an election. You also talk about a lot about impeachment. And it's more common than just the few times that it gets discussed in history. Sure. I mean, putting aside Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, the two presidents that were impeached, we have at least eight or nine other cases where resolutions were introduced to impeach or to investigate the possibility of impeaching presidents, um, a couple that didn't get to the point of resolutions and votes. Um, Early on, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president, he was actually being discussed. I believe the Tennessee legislature is the one that considered a resolution instructing its delegation in Congress to pursue impeachment against him. And this was in response to the supposed conspiracy against Andrew Jackson, in which uh, Henry Clay was involved to give John Quincy Adams the White House in a House vote, that didn't move forward. Uh, I think Jackson supporters realized that this would just reinforce the impression of Andrew Jackson as a, a bitter, intolerant person. Plus, they knew that they had actually won more popular votes than JQA and felt good about the next election. But sure enough, Andrew Jackson becomes president, and a similar thing happens when they raise the possibility of Jackson's impeachment in the House. And even though he had called Jackson's election the greatest calamity to strike the United States since its independence, Henry Clay knew better than most how to calculate political odds, and he knew that there was no chance for this to move forward. So he said, we're not going to move forward on it. 
the first actual resolution that was moved forward to try to impeach a president was against John Tyler. And that happened in January of 1843. A Virginia representative made charges against Tyler of corruption, misconduct in office, high crimes and misdemeanors, ultimately listing nine different degrees of misconduct against the president. The House did vote on it. They voted not to adopt the resolution. And so the discussion ended. But it did start a long string of actions against presidents, including Andrew Johnson, of course. But we also had some presidents that you might not expect have impeachment resolutions brought up against them, like Herbert Hoover and Harry Truman. Moving forward, of course, to the modern day when we've had impeachment talk at least against most of the presidents since Richard Nixon, even if not all of them had impeachment resolutions dropped against them. Yeah, it seems like a quintessential discussion of a republic. Um, a republic has many noble qualities, right? It's, it's, it's infused with democracy. Um, yes, it's not exactly the same thing, but its, it's foundation is in rule by the people versus rule by kings. So some mechanism is needed to be sure that anyone that's put in the executive power doesn't have full control. Impeachment is relatively easy. Just a vote of the House. That's a majority vote is one of the lowest standards. There's many other things that are required two-thirds. Of course, when it goes to the Senate, that's where you get the two-thirds requirement. But to simply impeach, to make the charge by the people's representatives, just a majority of the House. Yet, we can't simplify this. If there is an impeachment vote or even an impeachment investigation today, it will be extremely controversial. There will be people protesting in Capitol Hill and maybe in, in local offices. There will be a lot of activity on social media. Nobody likes to see their president impeached, right? Clinton supporters didn't like it in the 1990s when there was talk of it. With Obama, supporters of President Obama certainly didn't like it. Nobody likes it. But yet, there it is in the Constitution, and it was an es it's an essential part of it. And the investigation surrounding it is also uh, in the fabric of what a legislature does. I mean, they're not simply going to impeach without some kind of legislative hearing. So it's something that's so essential in the Constitution, even easy to do, but yet remains so controversial and can even be politically dangerous for that reason. And it makes people hesitant to do it. Um, going way back, we did an episode about uh, Jefferson as governor of Virginia in the 1780s, you know, the, the, during the Revolutionary War. He's governor. The British invade Virginia. Uh, Virginia has a lot of their troops sent out to other colonies. A number of them were captured when the British successfully captured Charleston. So thousands of Virginians are there. There's really no one to defend Virginia, or very limited troops. And the British make a surprising strike deep into the interior of Virginia, the American or the, the Virginia state legislatures forced to retreat, Governor Jefferson retreating with them. It's just not a good look. And there's a subsequent investigation. And you have these two views on it. On one hand, Patrick Henry, members of the legislature are simply, you know, this is normal. 
we're a democracy. We're the people. We investigate everything. Everything must be transparent, and we must look at it all. We have to look at the conduct of the former government and the former governor here. You know, Jefferson had just stepped down right after this uh, retreat. Jefferson was very nearly captured in the incident. Jefferson, looking at it, can see it as no other way as it's an insult and it's political and it's something that for the rest of his life he resented. He never had the same relationship with Patrick Henry after that. It was used in future elections, in the election of 1800. This incident is used against him. So it's something that he's very sore about. And you see in that incident with Governor Jefferson, before, you know, we have even a constitution that there is this tension between the person who's given the executive power and the people that are are there to check on him or her and on what's being done and who have the checking authority and the legislative authority. I mean, so there it is there. You have to have this power to have a republic or else the republic's not going to work. But how come every time it's used, it's so dicey? The House of Representatives can impeach a president with a simple majority, Bruce. I mean, you're right. It's it's not hard to impeach, whether that's a president or a judge or anyone else. The issue is, do you want to move forward with impeachment if a conviction is unlikely and the conviction could bring about removal from office? The impeachment itself is just a, a rebuke, just a, a slap across the face. So, yeah, it's, it's a serious issue, but it's one that the founders did discuss at the convention. We don't have, of course, complete records of everything that was said, but from the notes that existed and were compiled, we know that at least the North Carolina representative, William Davey, said if he not be impeachable whilst in office, he will spare no efforts or means whatever to get himself reelected. Benjamin Franklin at the convention went a different direction with it. He said that you know, critics of a president would turn to assassination if impeachment was unavailable as an option at all. And then you had Elbridge Gerry uh, jumping in on it, adding his view of impeachment, saying that a good magistrate will not fear them. A bad one ought to be kept in fear of them. This, this doesn't sound like something they put into the Constitution never to be used or debated. They wanted it to be hanging over the head of a president to help ensure that maladministration at a minimum and absolutely unacceptable behavior at a maximum did not occur. And the odd thing is that we have another check on unlimited presidential power, which is not controversial at all and which we use regularly, but it is similarly placed in the Constitution of the United States as a means to remove a president and make sure we do not have a succession of essentially kings ruling until they die or choose to leave office. And, and those are regular presidential elections, that every four years, we will elect a president, maybe we'll elect the same one, maybe we'll elect a whole new one. But there is no denying that it was a means put into the Constitution to ensure that we did not have one president for his or her entire lifetime. Well, guess what? Impeachment is also in the Constitution, and there's not anything dramatic separating it from the process of an election in terms of how to choose or remove a chief executive. Because it was not used for so long, and the first actual case of a successful impeachment took place in 1868, so we're talking 
many decades after the Constitution was passed, because it took so long and because there was not a presidential removal and because it took so long to impeach another president, it certainly feels different than an election. But there's nothing to say that it is inherently wrong. I find it funny when somebody who is ahistorical thinks of impeachment as something that is unconstitutional. I think it was a White House advisor, Kellyanne Conway, who recently said that it was unconstitutional for Democrats to embarrass this president with impeachment. It's literally in the Constitution that impeachment is a remedy for an unfit president. So to say that just shows a lack of understanding of history. And I think picking up on what you said there, there is this cycle between elections and impeachments, um, possibly because we decided on a four-year term for a president. So elections aren't that far away. When you look at the last few uses of the impeachment, Andrew Johnson certainly, um, that 1868 election was coming up. And it was definitely a factor. There were people, including Ross, who was the deciding vote, that would say, why are we going to impeach Johnson just to have Ben Wade become president? We have an election coming up. And indeed, Republicans, the opposite party to to Johnson at that point after he had kind of would win that 86 election and Grant would be president in, in less than a year. So why bother? There's one case that's even more dramatic than that. And it's the dog that didn't bark. So we, of course, don't remember it. But there was a resolution impeaching President Herbert Hoover for high crimes and misdemeanors with 11 different points. And it was offered by a representative from Pennsylvania on December 13th, 1932. Now let's think about that date. That's December 1932. This resolution to impeach President Hoover was put forward a month after Franklin Roosevelt had been elected to replace Hoover. After a short discussion, the resolution was tabled by an overwhelming vote, but that didn't stop the same representative from doing the same thing on January 17th, 1933. So we're talking within a couple of months of Roosevelt being sworn in, he reintroduced his resolution. And after considerable discussion, it was once again tabled by a slightly less but still overwhelming vote. So yeah, a lot of the impeachments, uh, Johnson, Clinton, have taken place late in a president's term. And you're right, that's simply a function of the fact that we have a four-year term instead of a six, seven, or 10-year term. But there have even been attempts to impeach a president when the president has already been shown the door and is just about to make his way out. Oh, that is interesting. i got to put my brain to work a little bit here. So if that happened with Hoover, yeah, you're going to have a Republican Senate, so they're not going to let that happen. They're not going to convict Hoover. So it was kind of a, a useless thing. Um, the other factor there that's interesting about it is that so John Ance Garner would have been the speaker that would have had to put through that impeachment resolution in the House if it ever got anywhere. He's about to become the vice president of the United States in a couple of weeks. Um, but if it does happen, you know, Charles Curtis gets his time as president for a few days or a few weeks. For a matter of weeks. Yeah, for a matter of weeks, we might have had a different president. And of course, you probably would not have had the investigation, the vote to impeach, the trial, the vote to convict. That probably would not happen in that time frame anyway. So it probably was just a, a symbolic effort against all of these criticisms against Hoover. So that's certainly the case. But it goes to show that impeachment 
has been brought up in different contexts in different ways. It shows an evolution of the idea of impeachment, but it also shows that it is, in a sense, a release valve for at least some representatives to say, I'm seeing behavior that falls into one of two main categories. And all the impeachment resolutions, whether successful or not, have fallen into one of these categories. One, they allege not necessarily illegal behavior, but offensive acts, things like abusing power or making bad policy decisions or withholding information, which might be illegal, but they were primarily seen as just bad behavior. The other category is actual violations of law, either the Constitution or of um, statutes. And this, of course, has been more successful in many ways against people like Richard Nixon pushing him to resign and against Andrew Johnson by violating the law that we know was later ruled unconstitutional, but at the time was the law of the land, the Tenure of Office Act. Impeachments tend to fall into one or both of those categories. And the interesting thing to see is how the representatives at the time choose to balance the formal violations of law against the behavior that just seems unacceptable for a president and therefore falls into that amorphous category of high crimes and misdemeanors. With uh, limited examples of presidential impeachments, you have to go to federal judges. So you do have this case um, during the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, where there's a federal judge, Charles Swain, and he's a U.S. judge in Florida, and he doesn't come from Florida, so he uses as his living quarters a railroad car, but doesn't recuse himself from cases involving that railroad. Also, they get him on a double dinger for that reason, because he's using the railroad car as an address. It doesn't properly disclose that he's not really living in a house in Florida um, when he's asked to. So there's another charge there. Also, he puts he charges with contempt as a judge. These two very popular lawyers down there in Florida, and this is part of the reason that there's a backlash against him and there's action in the House against him. Uh, you know, Swain's really not that important, and he does end up being acquitted, but he is impeached by the House. So there was enough to have a majority in the House that the concept that these things that wouldn't put you or I in jail were nonetheless high misdemeanors, that they were crimes for somebody who had that judicial power, something we couldn't allow to continue if you had that judicial power. But of course, the Senate didn't agree. It's very similar with Chase, the first Supreme Court justice to suffer from impeachment charges and um, also have to sit in trial in the Senate. Aaron Burr is presiding over the Senate. It is very much seen as a trial. I wouldn't want to have been in Chase's courtroom. It sounds really bad, like some of the things he did. He would berate you as a defendant. He would berate your lawyers. He would say, you know, the arguments of the lawyers are stupid. He would refuse to hear things. He wouldn't let everybody have their witnesses. You know, he wasn't acting as a fair judge. There is nothing criminal, per se, that Chase did, uh, but that was the standard used by the House. So it seems like uh, at least with federal judges, there has been a wide variety over what's considered impeachable offenses and 
House members have been a little stricter than the senators in this regard. Yeah, and it gets to the larger point that you and I have spoken about briefly before, which is this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. We have more cases of it being applied to judges than we do to presidents. But of course, it seems like there's a a different level when it's because it's simply there's one president at a time where there are many, many judges at a time. Clearly, the founders did not mean high crimes and misdemeanors to be simply bad governance. I mean, they explicitly rejected the term maladministration and did not use it. So we know that high crimes and misdemeanors is not synonymous with or broader than maladministration or bad governance. So what was it? Well, we don't know exactly. And I did talk to some constitutional scholars and historians to find out what we know and what we don't know. And they did not all agree. But I think we can infer a few things about high crimes and misdemeanors from what the founders did not do. I mean, first of all, they held off on requiring that the potentially impeachable act formally be a crime. Treason and bribery, of course, are crimes. But it would take one hell of a lawyer to argue that high crimes aren't crimes. Um, But adding misdemeanors probably meant that transgressions falling short of criminality could still result in impeachment. Second, the founders were silent about specific impeachable offenses beyond treason and bribery. So it stands to reason that calling it high crimes and misdemeanors was an attempt to make sure that the country's future representatives had some flexibility. Instead of binding their hands with something very restrictive, they wanted to include a range of things. Madison himself said during the convention debates of the president, he might pervert his administration into a scheme of peculation or oppression. Peculation, basically embezzlement, was already covered by bribery. Oppression, however, comes in many forms, some of which would presumably fall under high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, finally, the delegates and you know their immediate political heirs certainly didn't see that they'd gotten impeachment so wrong at the convention that they needed to amend the Constitution. They, what, passed 12 amendments within the country's first 13 years or so? So they had proved that amendments were a valid part of the system, but they chose not to amend high crimes and misdemeanors, even though they had done things like impeachment debates. So you put all that together, it tells me that they wanted it to be flexible enough to be used. They wanted it to cover things that were not necessarily illegal, but simply improper for the president to do. But they didn't want to leave it so open-ended as to say treason, comma, bribery, comma, and whatever the hell the House of Representatives wants to do, because then that would be very difficult to see any president surviving through a four-year term. Yeah, it seemed like they wanted to give it the effect of a big violation uh, without prescribing specific misdemeanors or crimes that would be considered high crimes and misdemeanors in the Constitution. But generally, the Constitution doesn't do that. It's foundational law. So it's going to uh, use those kind of general legal verbiage terms and let future legislators and jurists and senators decide, like, what is the charge? I'm sure... They wanted it to be something more than, I just don't like the person who was elected. I don't like their policies, um, but something of a higher nature. But 
it's also very clear that it's not specifically a criminal violation alone. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, Madison says is something like, uh, uh, you know, malfeasance, negligence are things that should be looked at. Um, I was thinking of, let's say, in the early American Republic, if Thomas Jefferson, and not just appointed people who he was friendlier in the same political party to various positions, but actively really started selling jobs and creating a kind of Jeffersonian little empire that way by uh, selling jobs. Now, he did this when he was Secretary of State. He would hire favorable printers and give them jobs when they on the side would be doing some newspapers for him, and that, that bit him in the back when one of the printers turned against him later. But um, let's say this was done on a large scale. Well, just giving people jobs, you know, is not a crime per se, especially if the president has the power to do it. But high crimes and misdemeanors seems to imply that there could be a misdemeanor in how you use the powers that you were using even lawfully, and they wanted that in there to have some punch. But, I mean, there's another side to impeachment. Right now, you have a debate as to whether to even begin an impeachment hearing, and I don't want to get into all the specifics. Uh, you know, I'll await the House members to do that uh, on, you know, possible, I think the strongest charge is, say, possible obstruction of justice, and I doubt there's a, you know, I don't know whether there's enough there for a court. I don't know whether there's enough there for the Senate to convict. It doesn't seem like that's going to happen politically. It could very well be enough there to have a House vote on it. Um, but you see the other side. If you do this and you go forward with impeachment, the danger is that there'll be a political backlash that you'll bring out the other side. Now, in the case of Clinton, the story that we hear is that the Republicans in Congress impeached Clinton. He ended up winning in a surprise. The Democrats win the 1998 midterms, gain seats where they're really not supposed to. Very unusual for a president's second-term midterm. Very unusual. I mean, not even Franklin Roosevelt could pull that one off. Um, and Bill Clinton goes up in approval ratings after the impeachment. Yeah, that's the, the conventional wisdom is that if you, based in part on the Clinton example, is if you try to impeach a president and you fail, or if you impeach a president but fail to convict him, that you will suffer politically, that there will be a backlash, that this will really come back to haunt you. And I looked at the details, and in fact, that memory is is stronger than the facts bear out, because that's certainly my memory of the Clinton impeachment. Part of that's because of media coverage of it. The media highlights failure, and in this case, it was a failure to convict, and that seemed 
like a benefit for Clinton as his popularity ratings were going up during the entire impeachment trial. But what happened is the impeachment, the, the midterm election of 1998 took place before the impeachment. It was clear that impeachment was moving forward. And sure enough, Republicans did take a hit at the polls that year, but Clinton had not been impeached yet. So the real judgment on the decision to go forward and formally impeach the president was not until the elections of 2000, because by then the impeachment had gone forward, the Senate trial had occurred, and it had failed. Now, the congressional elections of 2000, yes, the Senate did move from Republican control to a tie, so there was that slight change, but Republicans lost only one seat in the entire House of Representatives. Oh, and by the way, they won the presidency when George W. Bush took office. And then in 2002, the Republicans did relatively well in the election. In 2004, George W. Bush won re-election. So if the Republicans were to be punished by the electorate for pursuing this impeachment improperly, you would think that they would have been shellacked at the polls in 2000. And the facts just don't bear that out. Republicans, electorally, did pretty darn well after the failed impeachment. Yeah, interesting. I mean, my overall comment about that has really less to do with impeachment and just a general observation. Votes are not love. Um, Clinton's elections, his election, his re-election, doesn't mean people were rooting and cheered for him. There's a variety of factors that people use to vote. It could be I like generally that we're at peace. I like the way the economy's going. I kind of like the guy personally. I feel sorry for him. I don't think I think the other side's going too far. I don't like the other side. I like his ties. I mean, you know, I my my coworkers are voting this way. Um, my friends are voting this way. So all those factors are useful to study if somebody's trying to assess whether they can win election. But what's going to be the effect on a future election for a person? I mean, I think there's a lot more factors. So obviously, in the late 1990s, there were a number of people that were telling pollsters that they supported Clinton and then did not pull the lever for Al Gore. And that maybe had to do with Gore. Maybe it had to do with, well, look, I didn't think that they should have impeached Clinton, but I didn't like what he did. Could be a lot of ways to approach that, and this is this is where I think you see hesitancy on the part of uh, professional politicians because, um, well, they tend to mitigate. They're all lawyers anyway. They tend to mitigate. So that's the current situation: is that you have uh, the Mueller report, and he doesn't make a recommendation specifically, but leaves it to the legislative branch, which I do understand. I think more and more people should be doing that. I I think Congress really, you know, has ceded a lot of powers from the presidency over the years. And, uh, you know, specific bills that authorize the president to make this decision or that, which maybe their committee should be making. Um, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The imperial presidency, to an extent, is a creation of Congress. And so I don't mind necessarily laying things at Congress's door because it really is their decision to make. I'm not going to go over in this podcast, you know, uh, all of the the Mueller report or, or what's in there or the um, the case to be made. You know, I could see a House starting investigations based on it. I could see a House vote. I doubt that there would be senators uh, to convict. You know the thing. If you launch an impeachment investigation, there are certainly people saying, well, this is very dangerous because it's going to bring out the president's supporters. And you had hoped to win an election. Now you're going to lose because you're going to turn out the other side. Yeah, I I hear the argument on that. Uh, And there's really two points to that what I will call a a political argument against impeachment when the people who might consider bringing the impeachment forward truly believe that there have been high crimes and misdemeanors committed and the president is unfit for office. Even if that's true, there are two main political arguments not to do it, aside from the one we already talked about, which is, oh, we will suffer at the polls next time. There, there, There are really two. One is, you know what? It's just going to galvanize that president's base and it's going to make that president stronger and make that president do things that are even crazier. Well, logically, that falls apart on one grounds, which is if you're trying to show that this president is unfit and if you think that having the base energized will compel him to do even greater things to prove how unfit he is, then they should want to go forward full steam. The other side of it really harkens back to that electoral one, which is we're going to make that base for the president. And in current times, we're talking about a base that is polling usually in the high 30s, maybe low 40s on a good day, but it has a very low ceiling and a very high floor. I'm trying to imagine how an impeachment trial against the president is going to harden that base more than all of the other things we have seen across two plus years have already done. I don't see a lot of softening of that base and I don't see a lot of growth of that base. So I think it falls apart there. It also falls apart on the idea that we are in a static position. That is that whatever the polls say, Americans or Democrats or Republicans as a subset of Americans, whatever polls show that Americans feel about impeachment and removal right now is what we should make our decision as politicians based on. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you go back to the Nixon era, polls were not in favor of impeaching and removing Richard Nixon as the impeachment investigations began. It was because of the impeachment investigations, the revelations, and the movement forward that the tide turned. Political actors make their own reality. Think about it. If Barack Obama would have put a poll out when he was a first-term senator just four years removed from the Illinois Senate, they would have said his chances of defeating Hillary Clinton in the Democratic primaries in 2008 was a joke. But he won the presidency because political actors 
make their own reality. Public hearings are powerful tools to move public opinion. And we know most Americans have not read the Mueller report. We are trying at Lawfare, where I work now as the chief operating officer, we're doing a podcast called The Report, which is making an audio, audio narrative out of the report to make sure people get the core messages from it. But we know most people haven't read it. But what happens if you have Don McGahn and Corey Lewandowski and others on televised hearings talking through the very acts that are described in the report? That's the kind of thing that does move numbers. And I think a lot of Democrats are so focused on the idea that they don't want to, in a sense, strengthen the president's base, that they're ignoring the lessons from history, that you actually move public opinion by taking action instead of looking like you're deferring to the next election. Yeah, so like an impeachment, in a sense, makes it clear we're putting a marker on this presidency. This is a presidency under question, if you agree with us. I have some thoughts on that. I do agree, though, with you that the base of either party is going to come out or it's not going to come out. The idea that you're going to turn out this overwhelming group, if it wasn't there already, I don't see how that happens. I do think things can get a little angrier, but things are pretty heated right now. Uh, you know, you just have to go on Twitter to see. Um, so how much more? But on the uh, idea of a television hearing, I, my own opinion is that the TV hearing ain't what it used to be. In Watergate, when you had those TV hearings canceling soap operas and every American watching it, and then at night on the McNeil Lear Hour and other places, they were showing the highlights from the committees. You had the people that were at home, um, and then you had the workers coming back from home, and everybody was watching everything having to do with Watergate. And it was shocking because it really is the first expose where we're not just taking the president at their word, where we're raising questions and you have people from the White House like John Dean saying that things were done that were crimes. And, you know, it really has a shock value. With Iran-Contra, I mean, that really hurts Ronnie Reagan. There's no doubt. I mean, it's uh, it's a blight on his presidency to this day that you had this uh, television hearings and that there's talking about papers being shredded and uh, Congress being violated and foreign policy happening in secret um, and eating at the question of what the president knew and when the president knew it. You did have the counterexample of uh, Ollie North, which he sort of uh, started a counter coup within that hearing where he was becoming more popular than the congressional questioners. So you started to see the beginnings of how one can counter these things by just being kind of obstructionist or just kind of saying, hey, yeah, I did it. Um, what are you going to do? That kind of thing. So that that's that was an early example of that. But the effect on Reagan's presidency was the same, regardless of what North did and how many letters he received. And while North proved personally popular, that particular content wasn't helpful for the president or how the president was viewed and you know weaken the president it weakened reagan's presidency at the tail end there so we're not talking about the days of like estes kefauver investigating teamsters and organized crime and 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 city bosses and things like this now you have social media you have people with like 
to your corners, to go to your respective medias where you're going to watch the show, where you're going to watch the hearing, and how it's going to be interpreted. You have sideline notes. You have Twitter going on while everyone's speaking. You have the conduct of witnesses and how they're going to act and new ways and new strategies. Like they can just be obstructionists. They can say weird things. They can say um, they can attack the attackers more than they normally would. And you don't simply have the four channels, the four networks anymore. And that to me all goes to limiting, you know, that shock value of a TV hearing. I mean, there are other reasons though. There's additional investigative powers that come from in, in starting an impeachment. And there's, if you uncover something, then Perhaps you're changing the political situation, but the 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 TV hearing alone anymore. I would I think it's limited. It's there's a lot of questions that are going to be there as to um, the perception of what it is vis-a-vis what it was in Watergate, and you know um, Nixon might have got away with a. I mean Nixon didn't get away with a lot he was known that he was a lawyer and it was known that he was knowledgeable about the law and then here he's on the tape doing this will it be less shocking first of all since Watergate occurred so you already now it's no longer the shocking new reality that a president would say these things uh now it's baked into the history that people bring you know there's not going to be a tape in this you raise a good point which is the the changing standards and i'm not I'm not sure that the lesson is strong enough if we just go back to the Nixon impeachment. If we look over the long history of applying the same language on impeachment in the same document, the Constitution, to the same office, the presidency of the United States, we have a dramatic change in what people have thought was impeachable behavior. We can go back to the resolutions that were introduced against John Tyler and resolutions introduced against Andrew Johnson. Now, he wasn't impeached specifically for these things, but some of the things that were put out there as legitimate things to debate on whether they were impeachable had to do with the arbitrary use of the veto power. Well, you can't imagine an article of impeachment today claiming that the president has violated the Constitution because he used the veto power because he disagreed with a bill. But back at the beginning of the Republic, it was shocking when you had presidents starting to veto bills, not because they thought it was uh, unconstitutional, but because they just thought it was bad policy. That was considered by many to be an impeachable act. Today, that would be absolutely ridiculous, and it would be laughed out of the room. Similarly, the article of impeachment against Andrew Johnson that basically said, you're going out in public and saying mean things about members of Congress. Are you kidding me? Our whole political system is based on that kind of thing now. So it's very hard to understand. I'll even move to the one that was introduced against President Hoover. Now, again, this was introduced after he had already lost the election to FDR. But one of the elements that was proposed as an impeachment was that Hoover had increased unemployment and taxes to the detriment of the American people. Are you kidding me? And that's and that's within the last hundred years. So yes, going back to Nixon, we see some subtle changes, but I think we have to realize there are some very major changes that point to the fact that the subjectivity of high crimes and misdemeanors allows the representatives to say, essentially, 
is this president fit to remain in office? Fitness back then meant arbitrarily using the veto power to many people. Now it may mean something different, but it's an opportunity for a national conversation on do you want a president who is you know, profiting from personal business that government business is being directed to? Do you want a president who is obstructing justice or at least was really trying hard to obstruct justice but just couldn't do it right? I mean, those are things that are legitimate areas of debate. And I think knowing the history of the impeachment process informs those debates. Yeah, one case I've been looking at recently, again, because there's so few presidential impeachments, I'm going and looking at some of the federal judges. And you have um, West Humphreys in 1863. During the Civil War, he's a judge in Tennessee. And this is common during that time that many of the federal judges resigned their post because they were joining the Confederacy and becoming judges there. And this is what happens with Humphreys. Except, interestingly, he doesn't resign his commission as a U.S. judge. I don't know whether it was something he forgot or whether it was um, uh, a deliberate decision so he could retain that authority. He becomes judge of the Confederacy, and he doesn't actually break his schedule at all. He keeps hearing court in Tennessee. Meanwhile, in Congress, he's they're, they're upset about this because Lincoln has appointments for all of the people who have, um, especially as there's a military governor in Tennessee and you start to establish things there, uh, Lincoln has replacements for all of the various judges who are going to going to replace those who have resigned. But this Humphreys case is interesting because if you replace him, you might be signaling that you're accepting the Confederacy. There has to be something that happens here. He has to he has to be impeached because they're they're worried about anything that the Lincoln administration does that could be interpreted by England or France as recognizing that Humphreys has gone into another country. There's impeachment hearings in the House, and it's not a difficult thing. I mean, believe it or not, it's a little um, – you do have, like, union um, union Democrats and some Copperhead Democrats, and you, you have people who maybe are a little less harsh, but there really isn't much of a debate. They have various charges. Among his charges are uh, besides that he uh, supported the Confederacy, supported secession – that he took property from Andrew Johnson. So he's involved, oddly enough, in this federal judge's impeachment. He's going to have his own impeachment a few years later. The reason the Humphreys case is interesting, though, is, uh, yes, they impeach him and he's convicted by the Senate. But during the proceeding in the House, they're reading the charges. And then arrives Governor of Tennessee, Parson Barnlow, who's a Parson Barlow, who's going to be uh, a big factor in Tennessee's Reconstruction and is an avid supporter of the Union cause and against the Confederacy. And he makes a personal trip to Washington, D.C. to argue against, uh, to argue for the impeachment of Humphreys. And so they actually allow this speech, which really becomes a, a political attack on, on Humphreys, and the House does not actually go through and prove each charge, but they vote for impeachment, send it to the Senate, and he's convicted. Demonstrating that, you know, 
or at least setting a precedent for the fact that impeachment can be whatever the House says it is. Um, It's a simple majority of the House. It's not a court of law. Uh, I think that precedent has established that the, the Senate might become like a court of law. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. During an impeachment hearing, but it's not a court of law because the defendant doesn't have some of the rights. If you make it an actual trial, then the defendant's going to have the right to question witnesses face-to-face and... Believe me, during Andrew Johnson's uh, trial, there were some senators who wanted him in that courtroom. And Andrew Johnson, against the advice of his advisors, wanted to be in that courtroom, too. But that's not what happened. So you have some things that don't exist during that. It's not a full trial, I guess is the... I think that also means that charges can be political. I think it also means that what impeachment is, what is impeachable, could change over time. It, it is inherently political, and I think the founders knew that. They, they did not put impeachment into a pure judicial process. They created a quasi-judicial process, something that looked and smelled and sounded like a judicial process, but they put it into, initially, for the impeachment vote itself, they put it into the body that was closest to the people of the United States, that is, the most recently elected political representatives in the House. So, of course, it's it's political. And I think Gerald Ford got some flack over the years for what he said back when he was a representative talking about an impeachment case of a judge famously saying an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history. Um, caution remains in order about that in that we don't want it to be just completely empty I remember talking with a law professor when I wrote my book at uh, Michigan State, Brian Kalt, who has a great book coming out on uh, Section 4 of the 25th Amendment, the forcible removal of power for disability. Uh, But Professor Kalt told me that we have to think carefully about what a majority of the House would say it is. In his words, it's not like passing a resolution in support of National Burrito Week. Well, clearly this rises to a higher level when you're talking about impeachment. But guess what? The flexible standard that we have of high crimes and misdemeanors does give the House a whole lot of flexibility, which is a political decision to weigh whether the president needs to be impeached and removed to the point that constitutional scholars generally will say that there is no case in which the Supreme Court would ever step in and say, no, that is an invalid application of the impeachment power. I'm not so sure. I would imagine that if, 
you had a, let's go hypothetical here, Bruce. Let's say that you had a House of Representatives that despised the president so much that absent any even veneer of going for a high crime and misdemeanor or treason or bribery, they impeached the president of the United States for having ugly hair. And then the Senate convicted the president and removed the president because of ugly hair. That's a case where I think the president's lawyers would have at least a reasonable case to go to the Supreme Court and say, this is not an argument over the interpretation of high crimes and misdemeanors because the Congress didn't even try to do it. They are not following the language of the Constitution, even minimally. I think in a case like that, the Supreme Court might step into what is otherwise a purely political question that they would stay out of. Yeah, I think a Supreme Court of the United States could weigh in on that question because the language in there is that you can impeach based on high crimes and misdemeanors. So if someone can make an appeal, if a president can make an appeal that you did something that wasn't high crimes and misdemeanors, maybe the Supreme Court could weigh on that. Maybe they don't want to get involved because they want to keep the process between the president and the legislature. I mean, that's an interesting question. If you look at... um, you know, there's a lot of limited – some of the charges against Andrew Johnson are just that he attacked members of Congress in, you know, in the political speech. Um, we have to stop short of saying you could just use impeachment for anything. I know that, and I don't think you would say that either. But it seems like the bumpers on it are uh, political, that what's the real safeguard? What's going to stop a party from – impeaching everybody every time it's like well they're going to do that to your president when they're in office uh that's one of them it's also the possible political backlash it's possible uh, effect on elections which are always coming since you know they're every four years all of these things so that might stop against a charge that's particularly weak i'm going to impeach you because i didn't like your uh health care policy and let's be clear, we're not, we're not talking about that now. There are reasonable, whether, whether or not you agree with the president's actions on obstruction of justice issues or on possible emolument clause issues, regardless of that, these are reasonable things that could be construed as high crimes and misdemeanors. So we're not in that category now. But you can imagine, historically, if a House of Representatives wanted to impeach a president for nothing other than they didn't like his accent because he was from a part of the country that the majority of Americans didn't vote for, they could impeach him for that. And the question would be whether they tried to pretend that there was a high crimes and misdemeanors reason for it or not. So short of something ridiculous like that, and it would be just patently ridiculous, I don't think there is any... Supreme Court intervention, uh, overturning of an impeachment or a removal, because it is so clearly and so explicitly put that way in the Constitution, and the courts have never stepped in to overrule a presidential impeachment. Yeah, I mean, I thought I had during the Clinton impeachment at the time with all these GOP House managers are working really hard to get Al Gore to be president. And most likely... Al Gore as an incumbent president in 2000 would have been in a much stronger position than Al Gore as vice president in the 2000 election. So it might have even um, worked out for them. 
in the current situation with the way things are polarized and then with the state of the parties, Democrats have the House, GOP has a lock on the Senate. Mitch McConnell has shown uh, in the past that he's not going to allow legislation to even be voted on if it's something that is not in the, you know, that, that at least his GOP senators aren't comfortable voting on. I do wonder in this situation uh, if there even would be a conviction or acquittal if uh, Democrats send impeachment charges to the Senate and say, okay, our House managers are ready. they got to be real careful who they pick as House managers. And history has shown that, you know, it's essential to have good House managers who are going to go to the Senate and persuade and not uh, not bad ones. But in any case, put that aside. They go to send their house managers and the doors are locked to them and that no trial is ever scheduled and nothing takes place. Yeah, we, I have to tell you that at uh, Lawfare, Bob Bauer, who had served as White House counsel to President Obama, he wrote a piece on this exact issue in uh, January of this year called Can the Senate Decline to Try an Impeachment Case? And he broke down the issues that said, huh, you know, do, do you actually have to hold the trial? It sure seems like it by a read of the Constitution, but it also sure seems like the Senate, with the uh, confirmation power, has to hold a hearing or has to at least have a vote on whether to confirm someone that has been appropriately nominated by the president. Uh, Well, that didn't happen in the Merrick Garland case. It was something like 293 days from the time he was nominated until President Obama left office. And Mitch McConnell basically took the view of, we don't have to decide whether or not to confirm someone. We will just ignore that it happens. In support of that point of view, the Constitution, to be fair, does not, by its express terms, direct the Senate to try an impeachment. It gives the Senate the sole power to try impeachments, which gives constitutional authority, but it's not a command that it must hold a trial. So it is not out of the realm of possibility that, yeah, you could have uh, basically a Senate majority leader or the majority of members of the Senate get together and say, we're not even going to hold a trial. I think at that point, it gets interesting. That is so outside the scope of what people expect to happen constitutionally, that there might be a political backlash for that, not among the core base who think that the impeachment being brought is probably unjust anyway, but among those people who say the constitutional order and its proper functioning matters more than one political victory, I think you might have some people on the edge who say, okay, at this point, we're becoming one of those countries that we used to make fun of because of the basically thin veneer of rule of law. It might backfire, even if it succeeds in not having a trial go forward, it might backfire in terms of the political fortunes of those involved. Yeah, I imagine a player in that situation is going to be John Roberts. I mean, does he come a-knocking and say, okay, I'm ready to serve as the as the judge for this trial that has to happen. Uh, does does uh, the Supreme Court of the United States get involved? But specifically, he could be a figure, and what he does could 
influence public opinion or what he doesn't do if, for instance, he goes along with uh, a Senate not even reviewing the charges and doesn't appear at their door or anything like that. Yeah, the only countermeasure, the only countermeasure to the Senate refusing to hold a trial would be public pressure. It would be political. It would be the threat of this is going to come back and haunt you. So hold a trial. If you're so confident that this, these are false charges, hold the trial. Uh, Andrew Johnson was clearly unfit for the presidency, even if some of the specific charges against him were stretched. But clearly he had done things that made him, if not the worst, one of the worst presidents in American history. And yet even he was acquitted in the Senate. That's a pretty strong argument to any Senate majority leader who disagrees with an impeachment to say, Senators tend to take impeachment very seriously, and they do not have a bias towards removing and convicting and removing an impeached president. So you're probably better off with the public taking your chances and making your best case in the trial in the Senate. Yeah, there's no doubt that senators have more independence. That was the plan in the original Constitution. They have six years, represent an entire state. The 17th Amendment really hasn't changed that to a degree. Those dynamics are still there with give them a little bit more ability to sit back and say, I don't have an election, you know, in two years in all cases. So, um, and you look at the Clinton case, I mean, there probably the strongest charge there was perjury. And there are people such as John McCain who voted to convict Bill Clinton and send him out of office based on that charge alone. So there's a, you know, changing standard on these things. And I imagine that, uh, you know, based on the amateur number of senators who decided not to, I wonder about how fungible what is considered impeachable, like some of the things that, you know, uh, maybe because of the Clinton uh, precedent that, you know, there's a perception now because you don't just have the Watergate case, you don't just have the Nixon case and fairly recent memory in times of television. You have the Clinton as well. So you have what was considered by a lot of people an overreach in the process. And so now there's going to be more analysis of overreaching perhaps and and using that. Uh, you know, standard might change over time. And they didn't always express it this way, Bruce. But in, in that case, I don't think there were too many people who would say perjury did not happen. It was, as you said, a fairly clear case that there was perjury. The issue was perjury for what reason? And even if they didn't put it this way, a lot of people could explain their decision to acquit by saying the Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors, high meaning matters of state, matters of presidential import or national importance. And committing perjury to cover up a personal affair, as heinous as it is for the principle of justice and telling the truth in a judicial or quasi-judicial proceeding, that's not what the founders meant by a high crime and misdemeanor. And they had a reasonable argument there. I don't think they were denying the perjury as much as they were denying that it was worthy of a conviction and removal. That makes a lot of sense. Besides what we discussed here, what do you think people need to know? What should we be talking about? There's one other element of history informing impeachment as it implies to the current case here, which is how is it that the House actually proceeds with 
impeachment hearings, with investigations moving forward to an actual impeachment process. There's been a lot of back and forth in the last few months by Democrats in the House about whether they are in an impeachment process or not. Big change occurred between the spring when almost all Democratic leaders in the House were bending over backwards to say, we are not moving forward on impeachment, we're not impeaching, everybody slow down, to Jerry Nadler last month announcing that what's going on, in his words, is impeachment proceedings. That's what we're doing. Now, there's a practical reason why they may be doing that, which is that in very limited cases, the courts have said that there are things available to Congress in the investigation if they are doing a judicial proceeding that wouldn't be. Most notably, 6E material, material that is uh, grand jury material. There's a whole lot of grand jury material from the Mueller investigation that is not available by law to the House Judiciary Committee. But if they are in a judicial proceeding, that makes it much more likely that they could have that grand jury material as part of their investigation and possible impeachment. So it's a practical matter. The other history that's relevant here is back in the Watergate days, having a formal vote by the House of Representatives to authorize an impeachment investigation actually gave some powers to the Judiciary Committee. The impeachment proceedings in that vote allowed them to investigate fully and completely whether sufficient grounds exist for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach. In a sense, that allowed subpoenas to be issued by the chairman and ranking minority members of the committees. Well, there have been some committee rule changes in the last several decades. The Judiciary Committee chairman already has the power to issue subpoenas. So he does not need the same authorization from the full House simply because House rules have changed and he's able to get some of that same material without calling it a formal uh House vote approved impeachment proceeding. So we're in this weird amorphous period where it seems like the Democrats are, you know, stumbling towards an impeachment proceeding. They don't want to call it that because politically they see that the majority of the American people don't seem to want it yet, but yet they feel like for courts it might be useful to call it that. So they're playing this odd game that leads to them not capturing the full moral authority of saying we must remove an unfit president, but instead this cautious dance around the term, using it when it's convenient, not using it when it's not. But a lot of that flows from what has changed since the last, what I would call, successful removal of a president by impeachment, which was Richard Nixon, who, of course, was not impeached and removed, but almost certainly would have been had he not resigned. And on, and on one final note, Bruce, the other interesting comparison to history is the Mueller report itself, because you, you certainly will recall, and I think most of your listeners will know, that there was a dramatic difference between the information that came out of the Nixon special counsel, independent counsel investigation, and what came out of the Ken Starr investigation into Bill Clinton, the former was, and it was just released uh, recently, but the Watergate roadmap was essentially a list of evidence presented by the grand jury transmitted through the special prosecutor's office. But it was a list of evidence that was offered without argumentation, without fact, without any kind of appeal in it. It was simply, here's what we found. And then the House committees used that. 
in the case of Clinton, Ken Starr, his report was, in a sense, an advocacy. It was an, it was an argument for impeachment that was using not just facts, but putting together the arguments, putting together the logic about why impeachment had to happen. Bob Mueller took a middle ground, but it was much closer to the Watergate side. That is, in his report, he included fact after fact after fact, much more language than in the roadmap from Watergate. But he was not making an argument saying, you need to impeach based on this, or this is not enough for impeachment. The closest he got to that was saying, you know, the matters that are being discussed here, there is a constitutional remedy. But it wasn't saying that should or should not be done. Yeah, I like that he left it to Congress. I think Congress needs to have more laid at its door, uh, needs to do more work, quite frankly, constitutionally. We have to have all the branches operating. And um, too much leeway is given to presidents probably since the Cold War. We discussed earlier. I think that Bob Mueller is a student of history. Certainly people on his staff were aware of what happened in the Nixon and Clinton cases. But he appears to have avoided the excess of the Starr report but also going a half step beyond the mere presentation of facts and trying to put the facts together into a narrative so that they made sense in succession. David Priest, great to have you on. Everybody check out his book, How to Get Rid of a President, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives, by David Priest. He's also the author of The President's Book of Secrets. Thanks for coming on, David. Of course. Good to chat with you, Bruce. And we want to thank David Priest for coming on. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, there is the extra podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There's a link there where you can go to get the extra podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening.